Good morning, church. Just want to thank you all who prayed. As many of you know, we uh, had an elder retreat, a pastor's retreat, this last weekend. Uh, We got back this morning. And so if you see any of the pastors just glazing over in the the distance while you're talking to them, it's because we're exhausted. But it was so good. It's so good. Thank you for praying. I think the Lord really met us. And I just want you to know that you have some amazing, I'm not talking about myself, but you have some amazing pastors who love you so much. They are so godly. I just can't, I wish you could be a fly on the wall to see how much the pastors at this church just burst in love and affection for you and care. And how much of men of integrity and uprightness they are. We just had a time where we went around affirming God's grace in each other's lives and then spending time exhorting, challenging, rebuking, and love, and how each man just stood in the middle and just took hard words and did not retaliate but received it with humility and teachability, and that's just so rare. Just want you to know how much these men love you and how seriously we take our calling to serve you and how we will be held accountable for how we shepherd you, so... Well, let's get into it this morning. When I was in seminary, I had an unusual assignment one time. It was called the genogram. Does anyone know what a genogram is? Okay, two people. All right. So the other guy who went to seminary with me and, and Jamie. Welcome back, Jamie. Jamie Olson's in the house here. So welcome. Um, so the genogram is basically a chart that breaks down your family line for a few generations. It traces health, ailments, dispositions, personality types, relationships, marriages, divorce, addictions, struggles. And at a, if you do your work at a clear, in one moment, you could just see an overview of generations and how oftentimes those generations will reproduce the same traits over and over again. And when I interviewed my family, I was shocked at the clear patterns in my family line. It deeply concerned me. See, what I found is that when I look at my family line, is that the men almost exclusively were deeply selfish, often cheated on their wives, had very unhealthy marriages, were domineering, impulsive. And when I look at my own life, I see the seeds of many of my fathers from both my mother and my father's side in me. And that scares me. It should scare me. The deck is stacked against me for me to be a bad husband. And yet, what we learn in today's text is though our families are deeply influential, they're not determinative on who you are and your destiny. And there's some of you in here who feel that I know most of your stories. Most of us come from very broken, complicated homes, relationships with our parents, our grandparents, and so forth. And you may feel despairing, like you're trapped. You feel like 
destiny has been written in stone and you will repeat the sins of your father and your mother and there's nothing you can do about it. And there's some of you in here where you feel like I am nothing like my family, I'm gonna totally distance myself and you're in complete denial that your family origin of history has any bearing and influence on you. And if you've lived life any number of years and you're introspective, you will catch yourself doing the very things you swore you would never do. You guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe for you parents, you're like, I will never parent like my mom or dad. And then you see yourself doing those same dang long speeches to your kids. Oh no, what did I just do? Oh man. But what we see is that these realities from our family line are not determinative. They don't have to be our destiny. In Jesus, you do not have to inherit and internalize all of your family. In fact, God can give you new character, new life, and new destiny. So this morning, we're looking at two lines from Eve. We've been going through this series in Genesis, rooting ourselves in God's story, and we see two distinct lines. One line, Cain's line. Another line, Seth's line. Both are very different, same parents, but teach us a lot about how mankind relates with God. Remember, in Genesis 3.15, one of the most important passages in all of Scripture, that God promised that he was putting hostility between Eve's offspring and also the serpent's serpent. And by implication, everyone that follows the serpent and the serpent's ways and all of God's people are going to have enmity with each other. It's going to be very diverging lines. You also will remember in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 is that humanity was given a very special task among all of creation that we were called to spread God's image by being image bearers, by our character and by what we do and live, and that we would multiply ourselves throughout the world, spreading God's glory and also cultivating creation. But what we'll see this morning is that those two diverging lines, Seth's line and Cain's line, though they still bear the image of God, they are going to be spreading very different images. They're going to be cultivating creation very differently. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And what's just interesting is you're going to see names that are repeated from, Lamech, uh, from Cain's line and Seth's line, and they're different people, which is really encouraging because just because they have the same name and the same ancestry doesn't mean they have to have the same future. Very different characters. Remember, when God cursed Cain for his murder of his brother, he cursed him to be a wanderer on the earth and marked him. And it's interesting because Enoch is actually not wandering. He's settling down and building a city which suggests to me that Cain's heart is ultimately still the same. He is still rebelling and pushing against God's calling and design for his life. In this city, his family is going to multiply. And something to note is that in my mind, when I think about the world and people before the flood, I kind of think about Neanderthals, you know, just like these really primitive, beastly kind of people. But 
In fact, what we're going to see is that technology was highly advanced for these people. Consider the fact that a lot of the people pre-flood were living 800 to 900 years. Some of you are tradesmen. Some of you men and women here are perfecting a craft. Imagine if you could work on it for 800 years. How good would you be? Uh, Think about Laura Kim and how good her work is. Her pottery will be incredible, right? It'll do your taxes in 800 years. It it will do everything you want. Be your friend. I don't know. But imagine 800 years of working on your craft, advancing and getting better. And in verse 20, we're going to just fly through it. You're going to see that they were having advanced forms of of herding animals and tent making. Verse 21, you see that they're producing harps and flutes. You do not create advanced instruments like harps and fruit if you're primitive. You have to have amazing amount of technology to just create a flute right? You have to have time. You have to have leisure. When you're just trying to survive and running from dinosaurs, like you don't have time to create a flute or a harp. In verse 22, you see, if you want to just glance at your Bible, you see that they're mining precious metals. You can't mine precious metals with your fingers. You got to have other advanced tools, This was a very technologically advanced society before the flood. But what you're going to see is that though Cain's line excels in technology, imagine their technology is getting better, right? AOL, then like Intel, then Apple, you know, they're just, they're going, they're getting better. And yet simultaneously, you're going to see them going downward in their godlessness, in their multiplication and spreading of the curse. They're going to become more and more wicked and miserable and terrible. Technology increases, but yet their sinfulness increases. Many people in our culture, we believe the lie that more knowledge and more technology, mankind will just continue to improve and become better versions of their self. And make no mistake, I'm grateful for technology. I'm using technology right now to communicate with you. Praise the Lord for that. And yet, we believe the lie that ultimately, mankind, our evil, is not really evil, but just the result of us not having a good life. We just need to alleviate human suffering enough and then have enough education, enough amenities, and then people will be basically good. And all the people who say that don't have children, you know? They, they don't understand. Not only do we have thousands of years of evidence that this is not the case, that mankind having more technological advances does not equal a better society and purity and goodness and kindness and love of neighbor, we're going to see it right here in this text. Verse 19. So we're skipping a few generations. Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada and the name of the other, Zillah. This is the first mention of polygamy in the Bible. Lamech takes two wives, and if you just read from the context and everything around, it is framed negatively. And I just want to be honest with you. The Old Testament does not outrightly say you cannot have multiple wives. However, every single time you hear and see of any sign of polygamy, it is 
cast in a very negative light. And it is an abuse of God's good gift. Remember Genesis 2.24, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, not wives, and they shall become one flesh. How do you become one flesh with multiple wives? Two to become one, that's God's design. And what we see is that when you start to break covenant with God, that will lead to more covenant breaking when you see the breaking of the covenant of marriage. Marriage is a gift and man is perverting and misusing it. Let's look at another gift, not marriage, but another gift that is abused. Imagine what would it be like to hear the most, the first song ever recorded, or the first poem. Would you like to hear that? What would it be talking about? Verse 23, and if you look in your English Bible, you'll see that it's, it's set aside in a different way in the text. Do you see that? Just like in the Psalms, and that's, that's the English translation trying to help you see that this is poetry, this is, this is a song, this is different, this is not just normal Lines. So verse 23, Lamech says to his wives, Edda and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Speaking about himself in third person, you know. Everyone, every girl likes that, right? Sam doesn't like, whatever, I don't know. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. See, the insanity of what's going on in the world, the spiral downward, as theologians call it, is that the first song or poem ever recorded, some call it the Song of the Sword, is celebrating vengeance. First song. Just the way that Lamech speaks about his wives in the third person, just doesn't it great at you to sound like he's degrading them? Likely the curse of Genesis 3.16 is well and alive in that marriage where man will have this strong temptation to dominate their wives in a sinful way. Notice he boasts about killing a young man for striking him. This young man, Yaled, could easily be a kid or a teenager. In other words, Lamech is boasting that if a kid just lays a finger on me, I'm lopping off his head. He would not make a good dad because I've been hit many times by my kids on accident. But what is he getting at when he brings up Cain? Cain was his great, 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 great grandfather. Well, remember in the text last week, God placed a merciful mark upon Cain, a very undeserving merciful mark upon Cain. And that if anyone were to strike down Cain, that there would be vengeance put upon that culprit seven times. So what is Lamech saying? Lamech is saying, you think God's vengeance is mine? You haven't seen anything yet. Mine is 70 times that of God's. If anyone wrongs me, I will never give up on revenge. I will have my revenge. No one crosses Lamech. It's amazing to consider that death was one of the primary consequences of the fall from in the garden, and yet Cain's line doesn't try to fight against it, they multiply it. They celebrate murder and vengeance. Which is kind of interesting. Does that, does that number, 70 times 7, does that sound familiar to you? For those of you guys know your New Testaments. 
See, I, I, I love the Bible because it's so connected. That's why you, always, you just got to keep reading through the Bible. See the connections. Jesus had Genesis 4 in mind, I'm sure. Peter goes up to Jesus and is trying to get some brownie points for Jesus. Peter says in Matthew 18 on the screen, 21, and then Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Just think about the contrast between Lamech and Jesus. Lamech multiplies vengeance on those who wrong him, but Jesus and his followers multiply forgiveness and grace to those who wrong them. Lamech cries out, I will make you pay if you wrong me. But Jesus cries out, I will pay for your wrongs towards me. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That's our Savior. What a God. Who is like this God? Multiplying grace and forgiveness towards others, not vengeance. Speaking of those who follow Jesus, we're going to see an early form of those who walk with God now as we see the line of Seth. Look at verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God had appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. What we see here is that the first parents, Adam and Eve, lost their son, and it seemed like the serpent had won. Cain murdering Abel. Remember, the promise is that Someone coming from Eve's line, some descendant will crush the head of the serpent and bring redemption into this broken world. And it looks like all is lost and they have another child. And the word, the name Seth is also the name granted in Hebrew, granted. So what, is, what are they doing by naming Seth granted? Eve is again attributing to God grace, naming this child grace, granted. She is clinging probably to the promise, hoping that there will be one that comes. And maybe it's Seth who's going to destroy the work of the serpent. Verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh, the Lord, all caps. It is interesting to note that when you look at the line of Cain, what marks them, What distinguishes them, what makes them famous is their technological advances of what they did, what they accomplished, what they built. This is giving us a foreshadow of Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel. They're known for their accomplishments. And I love that when you look at Seth's line, they're known not by what they do, but who they know, who they call upon, their walk with God. And and just a simple question to consider for ourselves this morning is, what will you be remembered by? All that you collect, how big your bank account is, how far you go in your career, all that you accomplish, or who you know, that you walked with God, you called upon God. And I just wonder if, if you were to poll your closest friends and family members, would they say that is what that person is known by? The way they walk with God. They know God. Let's kind of break this out even more in Genesis chapter 5. We're turning a page now here. 
This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man or humanity or mankind when they were created. It'd be very reasonable after the devastations of the fall and the curse is that you could easily wonder, are man still made? Is humanity still made in the image of God? Did something happen at the fall that we lost the image of God and therefore we're just like all other creation? And what we see in Genesis chapter 5 is that God is reaffirming the reality that mankind, though fallen, though they sin, they are still made in the image of God. They have lost intimate face-to-face access with God, but they still are made in the image of God. Let's learn about Seth's line now. There's a lot of generations here in chapter five, and we're only going to touch on a few for the sake of time, but also because there's repetition. So I wanna highlight the big things here. Also want to just make the side note that there's 10 generations listed here. And if you study genealogies throughout the Bible, which I know that all you guys do that for fun, you know, it's like, oh man, just, just really want to just go study genealogies today, right? But if you study all the genealogies, what you'll notice is that oftentimes the generations will be symbolic, symbolically representing numbers. And if you look here, there's going to be, in a few chapters, there's going to be another list of generations that are going to be 10. And then later on, you'll even see that in Ruth, another 10 generations. And I just make that point that it seems like genealogies, the points are trying to say something theological about what God is doing or what's going on in a people's family line, not trying to be Ancestry.com. So there may be gaps, there may be some differences that will not strike us as nicely for some Western eyes and sensibilities. But let's just look right now at some of the big points that God is trying to teach us from the genealogy. And I just want you to be, no. Pastor Ross was like, I want to preach on the genealogy. I'm like, praise the Lord. You do that, brother. And then him and Charlotte had to go and have a baby. So then I had to do this chapter. And I'm like, no, what am I going to say about the genealogy? And I just want you to know, man, the Bible is so good. It's so good. And if you feel intimidated by it, I promise you, if you come with a humble heart, eager God will meet you even in genealogies. So let's meet God in genealogies right here. Verse three, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. So we see this image of God being multiplied again. It's now through Seth, through Seth. And I want to just make a slight detour because I know every time people read the genealogies, they're like, 930 years, Sam, are you serious? What do we do with these long lives? First of all, I just want you to know that I want to take the Bible always for what the Bible says. And what that doesn't mean is taking everything literally because sometimes genre in the context is telling me that it's symbolic or God is trying to tell me something. So I'm trying to read the context, read the genre, trying to understand, is God trying to take me? I always want to take it seriously. But taking the Bible seriously and literally are not the same thing. You know what I'm saying? And so I read this and say, okay, is, is God trying to show me something with like exaggerated numbers? And my sense is that these are actual literal numbers. And the reason why I say that just briefly is that they're not all the same numbers. There, there's not a lot of symbology in these numbers. Maybe one or two could be symbolic. And then when you see after the fall, you see a sharp decline of 
increasing decline of lives and um, lifespans right after. So something happened, but let me just read from you the ESV study Bible, one of my three favorite study Bibles, recommend to you if you don't have one, just on the screen. Traditional understanding is that the number should be taken at face value, often assuming that, oh my goodness, can you read that? All right, if you can read that, man, you should be a fire pilot, you know. Often assuming that something changed in the cosmology of the earth or in the physio- physiology of humans, or in both, after the flood, resulting in a rapid decline in longevity, finally stabilizing a normal lifespan ranging 70 to 80 years. You can see Psalm 90. In any case, the clear implication is here is that they lived and they died, and that's what I want to emphasize. Let me show you this. What is essential in this text to note is what is repeated over and over again. If you just glance at Genesis chapter 5, try to figure out what verb is repeated over and over again. Well, if you had time, you could highlight, you'll see that Adam lived 930 years and he died. And then another generation comes, they lived and died. And another one comes, they lived and died. This is the fulfillment of the curse where death has entered the world. They don't have access to the tree of life anymore. They will die, and you and I will die. And you can imagine with each birth, there's just a brimming hope. Maybe this is going to be the one that will bring us redemption on this earth. But another died. Generation after generation is feeling this letdown of the curse winning, death winning. Longing, longing for the day with a promise Offspring will come and make all things right, redeem us, bring us, restore us with presence in in the presence of God, face-to-face intimacy in the garden city with a redeemed world with no curse, no brokenness, no death. But every generation lived and died without that promise fulfilled. Will this cycle ever be broken? Well, let's look at verse 22. Enoch, another Enoch, different line, walked with God. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had sons, other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. I love this so much. The cycle of living and dying has a surprising break. Enoch doesn't die. He was just not, the text says. What does it mean, though, to walk with God? What does that mean? Let me ask you a question. Do you remember the last time we heard the word walk in the Bible, in Genesis? In the garden, who's walking? God. God was walking in the garden. We just kind of consider the law of first mention, the first time something is mentioned in the Bible. God is walking in the garden And what was that like in the garden for Adam and Eve? Freedom, intimacy, joy, fully known yet fully loved. So Enoch's walking reminds us of what we once had, but we lost. What we had before sin separated us from God. And so Enoch, in one sense, is reclaiming. The original design of what we were meant to do, meant to be, meant to see God face to face, meant to walk with God intimately. Enoch, instead of trusting in the serpent's lies or adding to God's word or twisting God's word or or being suspicious about God's character in his hearts, Enoch is trusting and following God's word. He's relating with God the way mankind was meant to. 
And as a result, Enoch is living hundreds of lives of just shame-free, joyous, intimate relationship with God. I just want to encourage you to reject the lie that some people believe that the Old Testament God was this stuffy God that was unapproachable. Intimacy with God has always been the original design. It's always been in God's heart for man to be near him. And we see this term walking with God used in the next chapter, which will help us fill us out more with this understanding of walking with God. Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. I don't want to take away from next week's passage, but the idea of walking with God is not merely just having a good quiet time alone, but it implies your lifestyle and your holiness. He was walking in blamelessness in God. What does that word blameless mean? The word blameless is used throughout the Bible, and it does not mean perfection. There are many saints who were called blameless, like David, and he was by far from perfect. But what it means is that when you pan out and look at the person's life, that in general, their lives are characterized, marked by purity and holiness and goodness. There's little to blame. When you try to think about this term, walking with God, you can also think about when you're walking with God, you're walking with God, and he's the one doing the leading. Imagine, imagine a little girl, like one of my three girls, just holding their daddy's hands. We're just walking along, you know? And I went on a walk with Mercy last week, and we walked to Seward Co-op, and she wanted to go here, and sometimes just kind of tug her this way. No, you're going to die if you go there. Let's not go there. You know, just, just walking along in bliss, and she doesn't even know she's in danger. Just come on, let's walk. But I'm the leader. I'm her daddy. She's holding my hand. And I just had this intimate picture of walking with God. This phrase, walking with God, is interesting because it's such a normal, mundane thing, walking. It's not just praying or fasting or going to church or reading your Bible. It's walking. In fact, the New Testament authors pick up on this, and they use the term walk all the time. Walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5. Walk in love, Ephesians 5. Five. It's used over and over again. This word walk is also translated in some of your English Bibles as live. Why? Why is that significant? Because true walking with God is talking about all of your life. There is no category in the Bible for you to have an isolated, compartmentalized relationship with God. You just like shove them in a corner in your schedule and on Sundays or maybe Wednesday nights if you're super spiritual, and then you'll kind of visit him when you're in really big need or you feel guilty. You just put him in a room and you just kind of go out and hang out and you own the house still and you do what you want to do and you'll visit him when you want to. See, but true walking with God, not true Maturity in God. I mean true walking with God. God, Biblical Christianity. I mean, you're not a Christian if this isn't your reality. Is that God owns your whole house, your whole life. And wherever you walk, wherever you do, he's right there with you. Your life is orbiting around God. Now, a question that we've asked a number of times is that does your, is your relationship with God something that you just add onto your life? Or is your entire life oriented around your relationship with God? It changes everything. These 
preposterous little devotional books that are like five minutes with God. One minute devotionals. Insanity. No, you don't just fit God into your life so you can go really do the things you really want to do. Your entire life is structured around God. That's not just prayer or reading your Bible. That's your values. It's not you have your career and your family and where you want to live, your dream home and all that kind of stuff. And this is really your values. And you're going to like try to fit God around there to make sure you're blessed and cover your bases. No, no, no. You start with God and say, God, you are my treasure. You are everything. And I'm going to walk everything around my life is going to revolve around knowing you, loving you, advancing your mission, not mine. And then you try to figure out where you live. And then you try to figure out what you do and who you marry and all the kind of things you do in your life. Walking with God is an all-encompassing reality. Walking with God also implies progressive reality in someone's life. Don't, don't get all crazy conservatism here. I don't mean progressive in the way you're afraid of. Okay, that was a bad joke. All right. People are like, oh, too, too close, man, too close. I love how Charles Spurgeon puts it. It is implied, it's a little bigger, but still small. It is also it is implied in the phrase that his life, Enoch, was progressive. For if a man walks either by himself or with anyone else, He's making progress. He goes forward. Enoch walked with God, and at the end of 200 years, he was not where he began. He was in the same company, but he had gone forward in the right way. At the end of 300 years, Enoch enjoyed more, understood more, loved more, received more, and could give out more, for he had gone forward in all respects. Can you imagine how close Enoch was with God after walking with God for 300 years? oh man, I just love sitting with older saints who've been actually walking with God. It's like a taste of heaven. There's some men of God that I've been able to interact with and when I'm with them, I'm like, I feel like this is kind of like what it'd be like being with my heavenly father because they walk with God so deeply, gone through so much suffering, so many valleys, and they're so much more like Jesus after all those years. I'm going to just ask you a question. It's a hard question, but I, I love you. And I'm asking this question in love. Is, does that characterize your life? You're progressively walking with God, more like God, that you're more like Jesus this year than you were last year? Not just your own self-assessment because self-awareness is often deceptive, but your closest friends and family would say, you know what, 10 years ago, they were like this. 10 years now, they're so much more like Jesus. Now, no, you zoom in in one week or one day, you can have a day where you're super depressed, one day you're dull, but like overall, you zoom out and say, man, they're increasingly become more like Jesus. And it's kind of like this, right? It's like an escalator going up. Going down, like they're growing like Jesus. Is that mark your life? Spouses, would your spouse say that you're more like Jesus now than when they married you? Would your kids say that you're more like Jesus in the way you parent than when you first bore me? <laughs> That didn't work very well. You know what I mean, right? I pray by the power of the Spirit that God will continue to progressively make us more like God as we hold his hand. You, you can't not be more like Jesus when you're holding his hand. You can't. You have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does work when the Holy Spirit enters you. You know what the good news is? Is that if you want to be near God and walk with him, you can. Let me show you the one of top three theme verses of my life. James chapter four, verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I wish I had another three hours just to talk about this. The first time 
I grasped this. I lost my mind. I said, are you kidding me? I was like, grab the preacher. Are you kidding me? Are you telling me that as close as I want to be with God, I can be? Yeah, that's what the text said. Are you kidding me? Oh my gosh, what good news. I can be as close as I want. And some of us have parents that we want to be closer, but we can't. They won't let us. God is not like that, Father. As close as you want to be, you can have them. Amen? If you take a step towards God today, he'll take a step right towards you. What a glorious truth. It doesn't matter your past or your family line. If you want to be near this God, you can be as close as you want. If you want to do some extra study, I'm going to skip for now for time. Check out Jude chapter 14, Jude 14 and 15, just one chapter. If you want to learn more about Enoch and how the New Testament talks about him. But his walk with God was not in isolation in some monastery, but it was in the midst of a very wicked generation, and he proclaimed God to them. He did not privatize his walk with God, saying, well, it's a private thing. Well, there's private aspects of it, but it must be public if it's true. And he was in a wicked generation, and he spoke the truth to them. Well, think about what happened at the end of Enoch's life. God took him up. He just disappeared. Why would God take up Enoch? I've heard different theories, but at minimum, you could say this. One of the greatest losses at the fall is that death entered. And Enoch's life is giving us a glimpse of what can happen when you walk with God and what we, when we originally return to our, what was God's design for us. Is that the curse is destroyed. It's reversed. So Enoch's life is, is a unique exception to give us a glimpse of what will be the case for all those who walk with God. See, because if you walk with God, though you may physically die, you will never, never everlastingly die. You have eternal life in Christ. The moment you trust in him, even in that moment right now, if you're trusting in him, you have life forever. And it gives us, Enoch's life gives us a little taste of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. We see this picture. There will be a generation, maybe it's us, God willing it's us, will be alive when Jesus returns. And those people will not taste death. In fact, we will be caught up with the Lord. And that small generation will be the only ones who don't ever experience death in any way. But even if you die before then, you will not taste the second death. You get to be with God forever in the resurrection. Now, let me just land the plane with this. How shall we live in light of this genealogy? How does that apply to our life? Let me ask you a question, two questions. Who were Seth's parents? I'm not trying to trick you. Who's Seth's parents? Out of me, okay. I don't, I don't, okay. Who were Cain's parents? Two lines. Same parents. Same culture. Same amenities, probably. Same parenting styles. After their fall, the evidence points that Adam and Eve were redeemed. They're trusting in God, though through great difficulty. And yet they had very different children. That teaches us so much. I can't get into all the lessons, but at least one lesson to highlight is that your family will be deeply influential, but will not determine your life. That goes both ways. If your parents are faithful, good old Christians took you to church your whole life, baptized you young, all that kind of stuff, they're faithful, that does not mean that you will be faithful. You don't get to ride on their coattails into heaven. And it goes the other way. Your parents were terrible. That doesn't mean that you have to be unfaithful. Same parents, different destinies. It's fitting us for now to consider what line are we directly in? Cain's or Seth? 
See, because the reality is that at the flood, Cain's line was absolutely eradicated. His bloodline was destroyed. But what we'll see shortly after the flood is that we see Cain's heart pop up right in Seth's line, in Noah's kids, in Noah himself. Cain's ugly heart shows up in mankind. And in fact, in every heart in here, without exception, Cain's heart has shown up. But how do you reverse this? How do you know which family you belong to? Let me sprint through this. 1 John 3, 7 through 10. Just encourage you to study this on your own time. But just know this. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who was sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning. Doesn't mean they don't sin. They just make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. See, the reality is Seth's line is just typifies those who truly follow God, who are children of God, and Cain's line typifies those who are heirs of the devil, of the serpent. They embody his heart, his values, his ways. And I realize this can sound crazy, but this is the reality, is that if you are not following Jesus and living this lifestyle of righteousness, loving other people, then your father's the devil. I, I almost feel embarrassed saying that because I feel so characterized by like kind of crazy people on the street. But that's what it says. That's the truth. There's only two families in this room. You may not be a Choi, but we could be in the same family. There's only two families. You're either son of God, son or daughter of God, or of the devil. And the way you know is the way you live over time, progressively. So how do you know or how do you change this? If you feel like, what do I do, Sam? I look at my life, I, it's not characterized by righteousness. What do I do? Well, let me show with you some of the greatest news. John chapter one, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of men, but God. How can you become a child of God? You receive Jesus, you believe in Jesus. In other words, faith in God. Last passage, Hebrews chapter 11, talking about Enoch. The author says this, it was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. So how did Enoch fundamentally please God? Not because he had the right parents or the right past, but because he had faith in God and faith produces works, good works transforms us over time. He trusted God's promises. He trusted God's word. He believed God's character. And that is really good news for us because that means every single one of us here can have that true for us as well. You can have faith. It doesn't matter your family. It doesn't matter your background. You can have faith in this God. Put your trust in this God. He died at great cost to himself for that reality. And if you want him this morning, the great precious truth in John chapter 6, 37 is anyone Come to me. I will by no means cast him out. 
If you want Christ, you can have him. Please come pray with one of us. We want to talk to you more about what that's like. And let me just end. Church, beloved, how great would it be is that if our community was characterized by multiplying grace and forgiveness, not vengeance in this world. Our culture is filled with that. Let's, let's be multipliers of grace and forgiveness and represent our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this reality that because of you, we have access to be children of God, not by our own will or work or our bloodline, but by the precious blood of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who has uncertainty that they're one of your children, they're not sure they have peace with you, they're they're uncertain if their life is characterized by this lifestyle, walking with God, that you would deeply convict them and draw them and help them find forgiveness and freedom in you right now. Help us live this out. We can't. We can't will it this week. We need your spirit to continue to work in us and progressively make us more like Jesus. So I pray that all of us would be able to do business with you now and you would be honest with you and you'd speak to us now in this quiet place. In Jesus' name, amen.